couple of things I want to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about hell and heaven. I'm going to skip the animal pain chapter only because to me, I didn't really see the point in it. Maybe if you did, great. And if there's something in there which really struck you, wonderful. The animal pain book, I'll just summarize in one sentence. He talks about why do animals feel pain? Because pain has no redemptive value, right? There's no, there's no uh, growth in pain for an animal, like for humans there can be. And animals can't choose evil. I would simply say this, because it's biblical, that animals feel pain for the same reason anybody else does. Fundamentally, it's because we live in a fallen world. So Lewis goes on to all sorts of different ideas about it, and they're fine if you want to read about them. I didn't find it terribly helpful, and so I skipped it because I do really want to talk about hell. I really want to talk about hell, and I really want to talk about heaven. And I want you to see how you have to have, you don't have to have both, but we do have both. And they are both logically, they both are the logical conclusions of the same premise. Is that what, you with me? Okay, so let's go back to the original. And you got, if you need a paper, I've got some more here. But I have this, the, uh, the, the original question of the book we covered on, in, in week one, which is the problem of pain, which we've been talking about in all different ways for the past couple of weeks. And now, hopefully, it makes a little bit more sense. But here is fundamentally the problem of pain, or it's classically known as the theological, theological problem of theodicy. Here it is. If God were good, it's a syllogism, it's an argument. If God were good, he would wish, wish to make his, perfect, his creatures perfectly happy. If God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God either lacks goodness or power or both. You got that? Now, does this make, do you feel more equipped to answer that now than you did three weeks ago? How so? Can somebody give me an example? Well, we wasted our time then, it sounds like. Paul. You know, as creatures aren't happy because, you know, we cause that to ourselves. Well, this is a good question. Does, did, what we, talked about, we talked about all these different things. Is God good? Well, actually, let's get to the one about making his creatures perfectly happy. We talked about this in week two, I think, right? And that is, would it make sense for God to always wish people to be happy? And the answer is what? No. no. Any more than you would want your children that you would, you know, sometimes you have to let things go badly, right? If, particularly when people choose it. And so to always say that God wants us to be happy isn't it, is in and of itself not true. What he does want us to do is be what? Faithful, right? Because that is where true joy is to be found. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that God saying, I just want, I just want Father Josh to be happy every day of the week. I want him to just be constantly happy. Woo! First of all, how boring would that be? And secondly, I mean, and it'd be kind of embarrassing, too, because I'd be like, could you please stop? Right. <laughs> uh, but the idea is, does God, does, does God fundamentally want us to be happy, or does God fundamentally want us to be good? Right? That's the difference. And so, again, if we live in a fallen... We talked about all this stuff, and I'm sort of trying to recap a little bit. If we live in a fallen world, which we've chosen through Adam and Eve, we talked about that. If you live in a fallen world where there is suffering and evil, then God doesn't necessarily desire to be happy. He desires you to be good and to grow in faith and trust with him. Does that make sense? The end goal of life is not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
the end goal of, which is what our Constitution, our Declaration of Independence says, I guess, the end goal of life is in Ecclesiastes chapter 13, fear God and keep his commandments, for such is the whole duty of man. In other words, the, the goal of a, of a happy life, and we're going to conclude with this, the goal of a good life, of a well-lived life, is not to always be partying like a rock star. It's actually kind of a miserable life. I know people that have done that. The, the goal of a well-lived life is to become closer to God, right? And if God's real, and, he's, and he, if God is real, then the most important thing you will ever do is become less and less like your old self, dying daily to self, Scripture says, and becoming more and more like the men and women that God designed us to be. That's the goal, right? And then if you, take that, if you extrapolate that out to the end, to the end, you are in heaven. If you extrapolate the other end out to always wanting to be happy and self-serving and focusing on your own needs at the expense of what God wants you to do, we call that hell. They both come from the same place, and that is that God desires us to choose him and to love him. He gives us the option to choose him or not, and the end result of both of those conclusions lead you to either heaven or hell. Is that clear? So with that in mind, is the end goal of humans to be happy? Let's go back to the syllogism. If God were perfectly good, would he want his creatures to be perfectly happy? Well, maybe not. He wants them to be perfectly good is what he wants. Um, if God were almighty, he could be able to do what he wished. Can God force you to do something against your will? I mean, he could, but he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because he wants you to choose him. That's what love is all about. We talked about that too. So you see how the, do you see how this argument falls apart? from a Christian perspective, right? Because what the Christian Bible says about God and what people in the culture say about God are two very different things. And then finally, does God lack power? Well, we talked about this too. God cannot do something which is internally, logically inconsistent. He can't make a square circle or a blue, red, or a stone. This is the atheists love this one. He'll make a rock so happy, so heavy he can't lift it. Yeah, man, high five, you got him. That's stupid. It's a, it's a logical inconsistency. God can't do that either. Not because it lacks, he lacks omnipotence, but because it is just a, it's a nonsensical statement. So if God is going to allow you to have free will, he has to allow you to have free will, right? If he has chosen to create the world where human beings can accept him or not, then he has to allow you to accept him or not, right? It's not, a, it's not a, a deficiency in his omnipotence. It is his choice for what he desires for you. Now, you can argue with God someday, if you get there, <laughs> if we get there, to see him, if we are saved and we are with the Lord, we can ask him, well, why'd you pick that? And I'm sure he'll give you a very good answer. If you look at the book of Job, Job asks God this very question, and Job rants and raves, and why God this, and why God that, and God listens patiently, and Job continues on his rant, and then after Job finally catches his breath, God says, all right, Job, pull up your, gird up your loins, pull up your pants, and just stop a second and listen to this. All right, God, and God says, Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I created the sea monsters? Where were you when I did all these things? And of course, the answer is, what God says to Job is essentially, he doesn't actually give him an answer. What he basically says is, Job, this is way beyond your pay grade, pal. <laughs> Honestly. And I think if you can rest in that, and actually, if you read the book of, maybe we should do a study on Job next year. Um, if you read the book of Job, once, he, once God gives him that answer, Job, you gotta just trust me on this one. 
Job is satisfied with that. And that, you know, in my own pastoral experience, most people are. And somebody had a comment or a question, and I want to get on to hell. Yeah. yeah. Where did the Bible, not the Bible, but the translators in modern day yes. changed blessed to happy throughout that whole section, wherever they The Beatitudes, yeah. Yes. And I, I, happy is a man, happy is... And then once to, I want to punch. That's a good, so, so she's really mad. She wants to punch the guy. You're not happy about this at all. <laughs> she, uh, that's a good, that's a really good question. So there's a Greek, you know, the New Testament's written in Greek. And so what you have in front of you in a Bible is a translation of the Greek. Uh, one of the things in Greek you can do that you can't do in English is that Greek words can be much more nuanced. The Greek word uh, in your, for the Beatitudes, for example, is the word makarios. And it gets translated as blessed are the poor. Or now, modern translations, happy are the poor. It's a really bad translation. It actually means more a matter of somebody who is able to sit in suffering knowing that the, the end goal is already determined. In other words, somebody who can be suffering, but who knows with assurance it's all going to be all right. You may not be happy at the moment, but you can be at peace, uh, uh, knowing that God's got this one, kind of like he said with Job. Make sense? Yeah, so that's a bad translation. You're right. And, and it makes Christianity, I mean, a lot of people will say, you know, did God, God answer me? I've said this before. When, God, when we pray for something and the answer is yes, we go, whoa, God answered my prayers. Well, he just said yes, but he might have said no. And he might have said wait, which is oftentimes what I get. But in, in all those cases, it's not because God is... is um, you know, undecisive. It's because, right, not because he's not good, it's because he wants you to grow from it. And the whole point of suffering from the Christian perspective is that you, can, you grow through it. Anyway, good point about the translation issue. That's why you, that's why you send guys to seminary to study this stuff, I guess. Well, was one more. Peggy or, or Marilyn, you had a question? Isn't the, when, you, when you read those passages, if God is, isn't that the legal fiction that somebody who is a non-believer wants to throw at us? Right. You, here is, you talk about Genesis, and he made everything good. that was good, and he made us to be happy. And then look what he... He actually didn't make us to be happy. He made us to worship him, right. But, but, but people say that. But, yeah, but the point is a non-believer is going to attack you with respect right. to that. He made you to be happy. Let's assume he did make you to be happy. The point of it is, what they don't get is the free will part. That's what I have found. People who, who want to argue about faith, they are unwilling to accept the free will. They don't, they don't, well, they don't want personal responsibility. But the other thing, I, one thing I find too, you're right, and actually one of the reasons I'm giving you this class, and we're talking about this question at all, is because A, we all wondered this at some point in our lives. And B, if you've already reconciled this in your own spirit, I guarantee you that your kids or your grandkids or your friends will go to this very thing. The second thing is, one thing I find is often really helpful in a debate like this, in a discussion, is, I mean, you can talk theology, but it'll go over their heads because they're probably not theologically educated or even churchgoers. What you can always do is use the example, because it really works, of a parent to a child. So, for example, if you say, well, okay, someone says, well, God made us to be happy. I'm not happy. You're all suffering. Well, hang on, Mary. You've got, you've got kids, right? Yes, I do. Three boys. Okay. Is your goal for them to that, that they're always happy? 
Do you buy them everything they want to make them happy? Of course not. Why not? Well, I want them to grow. I want them to grow up and be, become mature. Oh, so maybe the goal is not to always be happy. So you can always use that metaphor, uh, because Jesus uses it as father and son, use the metaphor of parents to child. They oftentimes will give you a, an easy way to explain in some, that dynamic to a non-believer. Make sense? Okay. Quickly, right, Rick. He misses uh, a, a scripture in First Chronicles. Okay. The prayer of Jabez. The prayer of the what? Jabez. Oh, okay. Jabez. Yeah. And his prayer was, oh, that you would... Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Yeah. In other words, you want to be rich. Right. And keep me from harm so that I may be, uh, keep me from harm so that, uh, <laughs> But he, but he was happy. Yeah. And God granted him happiness. Rich, rich, richness. He, he did not let him get harmed. And then the man lived happy. Yep. The you know, prayer of Jabez is only mentioned one time. Yeah. So does God sometimes give you things in this, life, in this world that make you happy? Of course he will. But, but the one thing which we talked about last time is God, I think it was in last week's lesson, lesson that God will sometimes give us... Uh, get the exact expression he said. God will give us, um, here it is, on page 116, which is apparently a page back from the Kindle edition, which is what I used. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. That's a great quote. You put that on your refrigerator. All right. So now we're going to talk about hell. I love hell. I, mean, I love it. I hate it. But I love the, but I love the ability, I love to talk about it because people dismiss it. And again, if you just walk them through what Christianity is all about, it makes perfect, logical, necessary sense. Let me ask you a question. If I say to you, hell, what do you think of? Don't overthink it. Just throw out. What do you think? Eternal, eternal separation from God. Fire and brim, right? Anybody else? Devils and pitchforks, Barbara. Satan, Satan. okay. Evil, yes. Okay, um, those are true, actually. Let me, Lewis says this, um, on page 118, he says here, it has been admitted throughout, throughout the book that man's free will and that all the gifts to him are therefore two-edged. So free will has a good side and it can have a bad side, page 118. Um, divine, um, from these premises that God gives us free will, it flows directly that the divine labor, God, divine labor to redeem the world cannot be certain of succeeding as regards to every individual human soul. Some, this is great, some will not be redeemed. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were to go down to Publix and ask Mary the checker at the Publix line, do you think everybody goes to heaven? What do you think she would say? Right? We all have gone to funerals or been somewhere and people say, he's in a better place. You ever heard that before? I one time, before I was a priest, said, well, how do you know that? And that's a very, very good question. And actually, what does that even mean? But when people say he's in a better place, he may be, but you know, he may not be. 
And I'm just being straight. And the thing is, people, people tend to dismiss hell. It is a very uncomfortable thing. But I'm going to show you in a minute that the, the not having it is even worse. Okay? And it's, and it's inconsistent with God's plan of giving us the ability to choose him or not. If he gives the ability to choose God or not, he has to give us the ability to choose not. Right? And it is so... Um, if God wants us to, I have here in my notes, if God wants us to love him, he has to allow us not to. Therefore, if a person chooses to walk away, he lets them. Lewis said he would get rid of this doctrine if he could. He said, but he can't because it has three things which support it. He says it has the full support of scripture. Jesus talks about hell more than heaven, more than love, more than forgiveness, Right? Am I, I'm, you, you're, am I, you're, is this recon, rec, reconcile with what you're thinking? He talks about it a lot. And the question is, why? Why would he do that? And again, let's look at the parent-child analogy. If you've got a child, anybody here have kids or no kids? You spend a lot of time talking to them about drugs, for example, right? Why do you warn your kids about sex before marriage, or drugs, or whatever. It could be alcohol, or drinking and driving, or going somewhere without, without if you're a, you've got girls, going somewhere without other girls around you. You warn them of these things, not to scare them. Maybe, well, maybe it is partly to scare them, to prevent them from making a mistake, right? That's why you warn them, because you don't want that to happen to them. It's the same thing. Jesus spends a lot of time talking about hell and the reality of it, because it's a warning to us. He said, Lewis even says, um, uh, he, this is on, on page 120, that the dominical, Jesus' utterances about hell, like all of his sayings, are addressed to the conscience and to the will, not to our intellectual curiosity. In other words, whenever Jesus talks about hell, he's not giving it to us as a theological speculation. He's giving it to us as a warning so we don't wind up going that, so you're aware of the danger. Okay, And he says, and Lewis says this on page 120. This is, a, this is good. When Jesus' words have roused us into action by convincing us of a terrible possibility, they have done all they were intended to do. So here's the thing. If, so Lewis says people reject the idea of hell, but you've got a couple of, if you're a Christian, really big hurdles to overcome. A, Jesus talks about it a lot. And so if you're going to say, well, hell's not real or... You know, um, all these books, um, some of these books that have been out popular, or popular recently about, um, what's that one kid that died and came back to life? Um, hmm? No, no, there's a book. He wrote a book. Uh, it was called Heaven is for Real. I did not read it. Maybe if you did, maybe, I, maybe I'm overstating the case here. But I'm willing to bet that he didn't talk about hell in that book, Right. There was a really interesting book. I, I, when I was young, way younger, I was, was reading books about near-death experiences and all that. A buddy of mine actually claims to have had one. Um, but there was a guy that wrote a book called um, To Hell and Back. And it was actually a study of people that had near-death experiences but went to hell and saw it. So whether it's true or not, I actually don't. I actually don't I'm not even really sure I believe any of that near-death stuff, to be perfectly honest. But the point being, we don't like, we like to talk about heaven, but this hell thing is uncomfortable, and it should be. It's a warning. But, let me, but then let me put it to you like this. Um, what if, what if God, what if hell didn't exist? 
Does that make any sense? If God gives us the option to choose him or not, and God says, well, you know, you wouldn't, A, it's a not, the whole, the whole premise falls apart. The whole thing, the whole Christian theological message of the gospel falls apart if people are forced to do it. Does that make sense? It has to be there. And in fact, let me, I read an article a couple of years ago about this. What if you had a God that just, um, that just said, you know, let's, let, let's play this out. So God is good. Can we all agree? The God is good is a premise. If God is good and God said, you know, yeah, you know, uh, boy, that, uh, and I'm using the argumentum ad Hitlerum, for example, for uh, uh, Hitler, man, yeah, he was a bad guy, but hey, all dogs go to heaven, right? Heaven is for real. If there's not any sense of God being good, also exhibit, uh, also um, uh, executing justice, does that make God good? Yes or no? So would a God who just, somebody wrote, might have been Lewis wrote this somewhere, if God just gives a wink and a nod to evil without requiring someone to pay for it, it's retribution, retributive justice, without somebody paying for that, is that God even worthy of being called good? And I would say, no. Does that make sense? So even though people say, hell's terrible, it's used to make people fearful and to scare them and all these things, well, that's partly true, because, but only, it's only partly true if hell's real, right? And Jesus is trying to prevent us from going there. Um, but it, has to, it actually has to logically be true if the idea that God loves us is true. He has, it has to be true that he doesn't require us to and that people can choose to walk away. It has to be true. And for a God to not then also, that's the first thing. The second, so it's scripture, the fact that love requires it to not love. And thirdly, this idea of justice. If God is a God of, who is just and merciful, and they're not incompatible, if God is just, it means that sin must be paid for, right? Let me put it like this. Again, another just basic argument. The idea of retributive justice means if somebody does something, then something has to be paid for it in to compensate. I'll give you just an easy example. Say you, um, say someone stole, steals your credit card, right? So George Jett leaves his credit card at Publix and Mary the Checker goes, well, ducky day. And she takes it and she jumps on the Amazon and she charges $10,000 worth of stuff. Okay? You with me? That's a sin. It's wrong. So George calls the credit card company and says, I lost my credit card and, uh, you know, this person stole this money from me, $10,000 worth of Nugo bars, whatever she buys, okay? And, it, and it, say the credit card company says, you know what, George, you've been a valued customer. We've got a policy for this. We're not gonna hold you responsible for it. You think, woo, dodge that bullet. Well, hang on. Someone's gotta pay for that, right? Who pays for it? The credit card company, right? Give me another example. So, give me another example. Say somebody wrongs you, or you wrong them. That's happened sometimes, right? Say somebody wrongs you, and you, or you wrong them, and you say, you know, uh, Father Josh, I forgive you for what you said to me last week. Uh, whatever, whatever. You, you, know, you stole five bucks out of my, my desk drawer. If he, if he has to pay me back, right, for it to be just, but then say I decide to forgive him. This is an important one. If I decide to forgive him, who's actually paying for that forgiveness? I am. 
So this is, this is actually something to really consider. When, whenever something is a wrong is committed, we all know this is a matter of justice. It's got to be paid for in some way. You with me? Let me stop there. Is this, is this, am I talking over you guys? Are you with me? So this is not that hard to really kind of get your mind around, but injustice has to be paid for. So here's the question. Here's, this is where Christianity, this is how God solves the problem, right? This is how, this is, this is you can never make this up. <laughs> You're making up a religion. You can never think this cleverly ahead. If God allows us to have free will and therefore allows us to sin and walk away from him, which we all do, but God is also just, right? Then injustices have to be paid for as a matter of just, just, justness. Uh, uh, yeah. You've got two options, right? Either I pay for it or somebody else does. You with me? Okay. You see where I'm going? So what the gospel says, what Jesus, what, the, what Christianity says is, look, as a matter of justice, as a matter of fairness, which we all, if you think about it, would agree is a good and holy thing. If something is unjust, someone has to pay for it, which means either I pay for it myself or someone has to pay for it for me. If you fast forward to the cross, that is exactly what Jesus Christ claims to do. What the gospel says is that Christ is died as a ransom for many. In other words, he takes the hit, where otherwise I would take the hit to pay the price for justice. Does that make sense? It does all hang together. If I've lost you, stop me. This is really, really important. It does all hang together. And I just want you to see that as much as, and Lewis even says this, as much as hell may be a, if he could get rid of any doctrine, he says he would, but you can't because A, Jesus talks about it. B, love and the ability to, requires the ability to not love. And thirdly, this idea of justice, justice has to be paid for. We all know that. And so the question then becomes, if a person sins, which we all do, right? Because we're all human beings living in a fallen world. Here's the question. Here's the fundamental question about salvation or damnation. You ready? Who's going to pay for it? Are you going to let Jesus pay for your sins and take that from you, which he says he, he is able to do? Or are you going to pay for it yourself? And I will tell you this, brothers and sisters, most people choose to do it themselves. Any questions? How about an example of that? Um, how about an example of that? Anybody here ever invited someone to church and they say, ah, no, nah, not, 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 not necessary. There's an example. <laughs> I don't know. Debbie, you had a question? Well, I'm just trying to understand what you said. Okay. How would I pay for it? Well, that's the, that's a, so that's a good question. How, that's, we can, this is a good discussion to have. How would somebody claim to pay for their own sin? They would do it a couple of different ways. They would say, it's not true. I didn't do anything wrong. Well, okay, but, but it's self-deception, right? It's, willfully, it's willful self-deception. A person says, I didn't do anything wrong. Or, uh, don't judge me. You ever heard that before? Or, uh, you know, it's not a big deal. Everybody does it, you know? That's all saying, eh, you know, it's just dismissing it. Or just saying, hey, you know what? That's just the way it is. And if you find people that really kind of know their own, people that actually plumb their own soul and kind of take a little bit of, internal thought about who their own, their own personhood, they will do one of two things. They will come to Christianity if someone actually explains this to them, which is why I'm explaining it to you, so that you can explain it to somebody else. Or they become angry. 
You ever seen anybody who just, you talk about Jesus and they just get pissed off? Ever seen that? Know why? Because they know someone's got to pay for it and they refuse to let it go. There's lots of people like that. Yeah, if you forgive somebody, if you, and that's actually an important thing, forgiveness, if you forgive somebody, it's going to cost you, right? It costs Jesus, for that matter. It costs him everything. But yeah, forgiveness always requires the person who is the forgive or the wronged party to eat it in some form or another. It always does. And you just got to, that's why forgiveness is hard to do. But it's a decision. It's an act of the will. Marilyn. Yes. Yes, but, we, but, but, but uh, this is kind of a segue, but you're right. We are called to forgive, and we're called to forgive. It's, it's a quid pro quo in the Lord's Prayer. We are called to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. It's, a, it's not meant to be that we have to earn it, but we are to follow his example, right? And, all, and I'll just say this kind of in passing. Forgiveness is always a decision of the will, and it is an act. It doesn't mean you like the person or you necessarily trust them again right? That's a whole nother matter. Christians are not called to be doormats. We are called, though, to forgive because we have ourselves been forgiven. And I would submit to you, you can really only forgive somebody else if you really recognize the depths that you've been forgiven. Does that make sense? And so it's not a quid pro quo of an earning it. It's more of a, you mirror what I've done. If you really get how much I've forgiven you, you could forgive anybody who's wronged you pretty easily. So... If you find somebody with a lot of resentment, in my experience, uh, you'll find somebody who really doesn't understand that, that, that the Lord has forgiven them and really gets what that means. Super profound. Christianity is profound, though. But it's, it does all, as I say all the time in adult form, it does all hang together. Any questions about hell? Um, okay, Paul, what do you got? People who, like you said, want to pay for it themselves, well, that's maybe where hell comes in. That's exactly right. So if somebody wants to, that's exactly right. Thank you for making that observation. I, I would argue this, a person who wants to pay for it themselves, themselves, who refuses to, because to claim, to ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins is an act of submission. And we don't like to do that, right? We're prideful. We want to be in control. And so therefore we want to control how we're going to be forgiven. There's, a, there's a, fun, a foundation behind all of this, I think. Yep. And it's the fact that that person who says, I'm a good person, does not recognize their own sinfulness. They either they don't recognize their own sinfulness. That's a good point. So a person says, I'm a good person. I've said to people before, no, you're not. And neither am I. And, and, and in fact, to get someone to realize that you actually, you know, you do make a lot of really even if you don't do anything, this is actually what people will do too. Well, I may, be, I may have cheated on my income tax or had to fare or done all kinds of different things, but I didn't, I'm not Hitler, right? I'm not that bad. Well, God doesn't grade on a scale. If God's perfect, then anything even short of perfection is, is, no, bell is no bell curve. And it, there really can't be. How could there be? If God is perfect, how could there be? But people do say that I'm a good person because they kind of want to dodge the question. I would say this to you too. I, I, don't, I am not a person who believes in guilting people and shaming them for the sake of it. I don't believe that to be pastorally even useful or good. I do think it is incredibly pastorally helpful to recognize that you're a sinner and that you're broken and you're fallen and you need someone to fix you. 
because it's true. It doesn't mean you're terrible. It doesn't mean that Bill Shanklin isn't a much finer person than I am in terms of his personal ethic. Could be, I don't know. But it does mean, though, is to own it, right? To own it, your own shortcomings, is not to beat yourself up and flagellate yourself, right? It's to own it so that you can then turn around and decide to give it to the Lord. And that's liberating. Do you, do you see that? Okay. Any other observations about hell? Yes, Marilyn. Not hell, but the concept of shaming, I mean, No, necessarily. Yes, that may be true, but I don't think shame is always horrible. I think, I think shame and guilt can be good for only one. We talked about this week one or two. Shame and guilt are good for only one thing. I call it good guilt and bad guilt. Let's use the word guilt instead of shame because shame implies um, making somebody feel bad who's not actually wrong. That's how I hear that. Guilt is, guilt is something which you know is wrong, okay? Guilt is very, very helpful, but only for one reason. It's only helpful to get you to recognize that you can't, that you need to change. That you need, guilt, is, I've, I've said this to people, I can't tell you how many times pastorally, somebody will have, will have a, will just guilt-laden, and that's for, and I say, well, wait a minute, you were going to do this, or you did do this, have you taken it to the Lord? Yes, I have. Okay, that's the, after that, you got to let that go. That guilt is self-inflicted, or it's demonic. Either, in either case, it's not helpful for you. There is guilt that comes from the Holy Spirit, from the Lord, to convict you, to stop you from getting ready to walk off a cliff. I've seen that a lot. I've seen it in my own heart. But once you've recognized that guilt as something which is motivating you to change, once you've made the change, you've got to let that go. You've got to nail that to the cross like everything else, you, the burdens you carry, and be free. Does that make sense? It's awfully hard to do, though, because <laughs> we want to control our own lives. I had somebody once who um, was going to have an abortion, and I tried to talk her out of it for lots of different reasons. And she decided at the last minute, literally at the last minute, not to. Had the child, everything worked out great. Um, she was guilt-ridden for years over that. And I said two things. First of all, no sin is unforgivable. But, even, but, but secondly, you have to let that go because you, this is some, guilt is only good if it motivates you to change, which it did. Right? And if it hadn't, if she'd gone through with it, it's not the unforgivable sin either. But the only, the only unforgivable sin is the sin that says, I'm going to carry this myself. Because it can't be forgiven. Does that make sense? Because someone's got to pay for it, either you or the Lord. Am I making this too much? Okay. I hope this resonates with you. And this is why I wanted to talk to you about hell. This is so important because we dismiss it. And yet when you talk through it and understand how it works, it actually makes complete sense. I think, do you? And it's actually extremely helpful. So any other observations? A couple of quick questions. Um, so here's, a, here's question number one. And then we'll, we'll talk about heaven for about 20 minutes. And then we'll be out of here. Um, does God send people to hell? Could someone get that door, please? Does God send people to hell? Does God send people to hell or it is? They choose it, right? As an act of the will, okay. If not, who does? We do. Now, this is another, just for a full disclosure, uh, my Calvinistic friends would argue this, would argue free will. Um, they're wrong, so I'm not gonna bother. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this, is, this is the church's, this actually is, I, I'm actually being, I'm being funny, but um, that's another whole thread for another day. Why, uh, what does Lewis say are the primary arguments for the existence of hell? What are the reasons why it's true? 
Give me a couple. I've already laid them out. Why would, why, even though Lewis says if he could get rid of anything at all from the Christian witness, he'd get rid of hell, why does he believe in it? Scripture talks about it. Free will requires it to be true, right? The, the idea of justice, that justice has to be paid, injustices have to be paid for. And again, these are all common sense. Yes, Bruce? You know, I get that, but there's a, there's a lot of degrees between birth and hell. I can't hear you, sorry. I get what you're saying, but there's a lot of steps between living here and hell that God could have designed to an incremental punishment for not living, not, not accepting God. I think He does. I do. I think I think that's a good point. So, but to, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I mean, God could have made, you know, just unpleasant earth. Could, could you repeat for I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm not really sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Well, I would, why does hell have to be so bad to make us, to make us, to make us believe in God? Why couldn't God bring something in between earth and An intermediate state? Okay, well, there can only be... You want to, you want to take a shot at that? I'll repeat it. Well, Bruce, like, all I can say is this. Yeah, but, since that, but see, you're actually doing, you're actually talking about what I, you're making an illustration of what I talked about before. People want to grade on a scale. And what I'm saying is that if God requires perfection, which is what he requires, that's an absolute, which means there's no, I would argue there's nobody, nobody, period, including me, by default, who is saved. There's nobody good enough. Scripture says that repeatedly. So that may, uh, so otherwise, if you don't say that, then you have to say that there's some sort of graduated scale. And I'd be willing to bet that anybody who wants to pick a graduated scale solution, which is unbiblical, would say they are in this side of the scale. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that what I'm, unless I'm missing you. That's a very good question. Why is hell so bad? I don't know. I mean, that's a, you know, and Lewis talks about this a little bit too. He talks about what is the nature of hell? I mean, Jesus talks about a couple of different illustrations about, you know, fire and brim and all that stuff. Lewis tends to take, and this is another whole discussion for another day, the nature of hell. It's a big question. And it's, and it's actually not that clear. But what Lewis lands on, there's a couple of different theories about how this is. Lewis actually lands on, I think, um, an annihilationist view of hell. So that basically the human soul is um, obliterated. I don't believe that, but that's what, but I, I'm not really entirely sure. But so anyway, yes, Susan? No, I mean, I think though that for people that um, commit sins, and they don't turn the word, I Yeah, I mean, that's another thing. That's another part of it. Maybe that's sort of what Bruce is alluding to, is that you, maybe we create our own personal suffering. But let me actually throw this out of you. This just popped into my brain to make my point, Bruce, what I was saying before. And again, I would argue this is what Scripture teaches. You can disagree, but this is what I would argue it says. And that is that all sin, everything, is equally bad. 
So there may be, there may be some sins which have far greater consequence. And I'll use an extreme for the, for the sake of argument. So uh, say I cheat on my taxes. They make it even simpler. Say I steal a pack of gum from the grocery store. That's a sin. That's thievery, right? That is just as bad as what Adolf Hitler did. Well, no, no, they don't. That's right. They would believe, well, they would believe in mortal and venial sin. Some sins are mortal. Yeah, that's another whole thread. That's another whole conversation. But my, what I would say is those two actions have far-reaching difference in consequence, right? Obviously. I mean, there's far much, far much more profound suffering from me stealing a pack of gum than, you know, World War II. But the, but the point, to come back to the point I was trying to make, is that all of those before God who is perfect, once you take that little step off, you're now imperfect. And so that's the problem. Anyway. How does the concept of Satan fit into all of this? Okay, that's a good question. So the Satan, uh, Satan, we talked about week, last week, human beings have free will. Angels are also created beings who have free will. They are non-corporeal, they're spirit, but they have free will. What, uh, what the church, what scripture would say, what Jesus says is that Satan would be uh, a, a fallen angel. So when, at the moment of creation, Satan would have exercised his free will. And since he's non-temporal, it would have been complete. He couldn't repent because he's not actually in time. This gets very heady. But Jesus says in scripture later on in, I think, Luke, maybe you could, if you know which one, Luke, Jesus says, I saw Satan falling from the sky. So the idea being that at the moment of creation, um, and this is a little bit of speculation because it's not crystal clear in the Bible, but what I would argue is at the moment of creation, Satan and elite, some of the angels of heaven chose, like Adam and Eve did, away from God. That becomes basically fallen angels. Make sense? Yeah, that's another big question. But in a nutshell, before we get to heaven, that's what I've got for you. Okay. All right, so... Um, that's what I've, and then one more quick one I have here about hell, and then we'll get into heaven. That's the better stuff. Um, could God, uh, could God make everyone go to heaven? Could he? Is it, is it because he lacks, why, if, is it because he's, well, if your God can do anything, can't he make everybody go to heaven? He gave his free will. He gave his free will, and he can't, he can't contradict himself, and he can't do a logical impossible. He cannot do something which is uh, logically just nonsensical. You can't give somebody free will and not. Okay. Any questions? Yes. Then we'll move on to heaven. This is okay, more interesting. The concept of hell is so interesting to me that preachers and churches are perfectly willing to talk all about heaven and going to heaven, but they eschew the concept of hell. Right. And I think it's so interesting because one without the other... It makes no sense. We talk about being saved. Even evangelicals will say... We've been saved, but then they got, well, saved from what? This is actually when I was a kid, my big hang-up. Saved from what exactly? Like, what's the big problem here? <laughs> so you're exactly right. And we actually, Father Gritter and I almost taught a four-week class on hell for this. We decided to do this. And maybe we'll do hell next time. Yes. It's, a really it's a really, really, really important topic, and heaven is too. What's that? And there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Anyway, um, any other questions about hell? Not a good thing. Um, hell is uh, not something you want to strive. And in, in, interestingly, uh, you'll sometimes hear hell referred to as Gehenna. You've heard that before? Gehenna is an actual place. Gehenna was a, uh, outside the city of Jerusalem, outside the city walls, because it was a walled city where everybody lived inside the walls. 
uh, outside the city of Jerusalem was a place called Gehenna, which is where you took your trash and your dung piles and your old stuff and you burned. It was a fire that continually burned. So when Jesus talks about the fires of Gehenna, he's using an image which would be very, very obvious to them, right? Okay? Like if you live next to uh, Three Mile Island and Jesus said, you know, it'd be like going to three, being in reactor core one, you know? So anyway, let's move on to heaven. So Jesus, so um, Lewis says that probably the best way to look at the problem of pain is to look at heaven. I found this, I thought this is really, I'd never thought about this before. I thought it was really awesome. He says, uh, um, he quotes St. Paul in Romans chapter eight, verse 18. Paul says, uh, I reckon that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. So in other words, you can, we, we get stuck on suffering. We get stuck on suffering, rightly so, because when you're in the middle of it, it's hard not to be stuck in suffering, right? And kind of focused on it. If you stub your toe, all of your attention goes to that toe, right? It, it, suffering always grabs your entire focus. But what Paul's saying is, you know what? If this heaven thing is real, that actually changes the whole question of pain, doesn't it? Because it, it's kind of like, again, another, another family example. Um, my wife, I've got three children. My wife had all three of my children through cesarean section, which I thought was fascinating to watch, but some people don't like it. <laughs> but, to, but for her, she, she had to go. It was a miserable experience for her. She went into labor the first time. And it was terrible, right? If any of you been through labor? Susan has been through this many times with people that she's ministered to. When you're in labor, it is horribly painful and suffering, right? I'm, I'm not going to get a personal story, but I have, I have some really good ones. Um, it's, it is... <laughs> It is horribly painful and suffering. And uh, despite, the, despite the fact that the guy that gave you the epidural says, it's perfectly fine. And she says, I can feel my feet. And he says, you can't feel your feet, young lady. And she, he takes, a st- uh, takes something, in, uh, a needle, and poked her foot. And she went, ow. He goes, oh, my gosh, you can feel your feet. So, yeah. But once that child is born, what happens? You forget all about it. I've never had a child, but I've seen it done. <laughs> and, and you forget about it. And this, is, this is actually, again, this is, this is my own illustration, not Lewis's, but, but it changes the whole question, doesn't it? Once you know the end goal and the glory that shall be revealed, the sufferings of the present time, to quote Paul, are not worthy of really sweating so much. So I guess the point being, I think the big key to understanding the problem of pain is to understand the alternative, which is what God says he promises us in heaven. Does that make sense? Once you've seen that child, once you've been through that birthing process and you've seen that baby, you may still even be in pain, but it doesn't matter anymore because your whole concept has been rewired. Is that clear? Is that helpful for you? It was for me. I don't know. Um, you have a question? Okay. And then he says, um, um, he- heaven, he talks about Jesus, that heaven has to be real. Jesus talks about it. And then he says something I thought was really cool. Um, he says here uh, on page 152, um, he says, heaven is the one thing you've always longed for. It is, you've never, um, we all desire heaven. In fact, we all compare this world to heaven. We say that this world should be better. And then he says, your pl- this I thought was, I'd never thought about this before. He says that heaven, you, heaven was not created for you. You were created for heaven. And he says, he says, for example, why, 
Why does God make more than one instance of humanity? Why are there all of us in this room, they're all different? We're all similar in some ways. But why does God create so many different people in the world? And I'd never thought about it this way before. It's actually pretty profound. He says, well, we were created for God to be loved by God. We were created to love him. So Lewis says, here's something to think about. This is fascinating. He says, we are all created individually, differently, to honor God in different ways for eternity. Isn't that something? That was, I thought that was profound. I'd never thought about it. So, for example, Bruce and uh, uh, Connie and me, and, we all, and all, we've all got different life experiences, all things that we would find fascinating in God. But what I find fascinating about God may be different from what, or want to worship him, and might be slightly different than Connie, or we're all different people, right? And so Lewis says that God created Heaven is almost like an individual thing. I mean, it's corporate where we'd be there as a group. But he says the reason there's so many different people is because all these different people will worship different aspects of God for eternity. That that's what we're designed to do. Isn't that fascinating? What do you think of that? Something new. Something to think about. I never thought about it. And he says here, um, your place in heaven, this is on page 152, your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and you alone because you were made for it. This is great. Stitch by stitch as a glove is made for a hand. Isn't that cool? I just had never, everyone thinks of heaven as being always like, yeah, but that would, that would be old after a while, don't you think? I mean, heaven, if heaven, again, heaven is, Lewis does not get into this, but heaven is a reconstituted Eden, according to scripture anyway. Heaven is a physical place. We're resurrected from the dead and those who choose to be with the Lord are with him and those who choose not to, he permits to not be. Heaven and hell. But heaven is a physical place, just like Eden was. That's another whole thread, but for sake of argument. So the point being, we would spend eternity with heaven, with the Lord, in a real physical place, corporately, but all worshiping little different nuances of the God. Of God. I think that's fascinating. I finally get to learn how to play the guitar really well and play golf, Tom. But the, so, I don't know, does that resonate with you? Yes? What else, would heaven, what else would heaven be? I mean, life on this, the things of this world which give us joy are enjoying God in, some, in different forms on this earth. Heaven would just be a logical extension of that in, as us as individuals and in relation to God. I thought that was a really cool image. Somebody had a question, Paul? Yeah, um, Adam and Eve were eaten, and uh, when we go to heaven... We say it's going to be a temporal, we'll be outside of time, but it seems like... No, no, no. When we are in heaven, you'll be back and you'll be in time. You're, people, that's a good question. So people that are dead right now, right, that are, their spirit has left their spot, body and... Human beings are not body, mind, and spirit. We are one thing, which is a, a human, right? You, were, you, were, you did not exist before your conception as a, in the womb. So you are physical beings. Human beings are physical beings. You are, if you're dead... Right now, you are temporarily separated from your body, but only temporarily. And then, you are, and then you're atemporal. You're not in time anymore because you're not physical. But you will, at some point, according to Jesus, be resurrected and then physical again, like Adam and Eve would be, but in non-fallen bodies. Is this making sense? It's profound. Yeah, it's profound. But it's something, yes. Go ahead. When you're talking talking about all these different people. We believe that we are all made from Genesis 
in his image and likeness. Right. So that means that he has a, an infinite image and likeness. That's exactly, well, of course he's God. Yes, he has, yes, that's exactly, so God, that's exactly right. If God is, God is big enough that we can all, God is big enough that we can all have different interests and worship him in different ways. And it wouldn't be radically different ways. It's not like, but it somehow, I mean, he's God. He's completely beyond the ability to even comprehend. So we'll see when we get there. I don't know. Um, any any uh, further observations about heaven? Nothing? Yes? What really is interesting to me is when I open a newspaper and it says they discovered another planet that's 300 million light years from Earth. Okay. And uh, you were talking about that God created Earth. And it's just such a small, teeny piece. Oh, yeah, that Earth is kind of a backwater part of the universe. I mean, there's nothing... I mean, So that's a good question. Ron is wondering why there are other planets. I, I, uh, I'm going to go on a limb here. I would be, I would be willing to be uh, convinced otherwise, but I would say that we are probably the only planet that has life on it. That's my. I read an article about this recently. That everyone thinks, you know, Carl Sagan, billions and billions of stars. Yeah, but the uh, the, the statistical necessity to have life is so infinitesimally small. There's a likelihood pretty good likelihood that Earth is the only place with life in the entire universe. Again, who knows? But, but I would say this, even if there is life on planet Blimfark somewhere, if they're going to heaven, they're saved by Jesus. So maybe someday we'll send missionaries to the planet Blimfark, wherever that is. Debbie, you had a question? Yeah. Do you think that God created all the planets as well? He created everything, yes. Every, God creates even time itself. I mean, this is another... Hugely profound thing. You know, uh, scientists would say now that uh, in God's, you know, that believe in the Big Bang theory, which is this all the mass in the universe and energy was created, was in something called the singularity, which was infinitesimally small, then exploded out into the universe. And what does the Bible say in the very beginning of it? In the beginning, an arche in Greek, uh, meaning when time started, which is exactly what that would be. It's fascinating. That's another, whole, that's another whole thread for another day. But has this class been helpful for you? It's, it's heady. Uh, it's really, really important. Um, I would challenge you to go back. These, the videos will be on, online um, next week or so. Go back and look at them again. Maybe even reread the book now that you've been through the lecture and maybe gotten some things to sort of key off of. Um, I found it really helpful. I found the book difficult, I'll be honest, but I found it helpful to go through it and really have to pick it apart and tried to uh, lecture it. How many of you actually read the book? A cu- oh, okay, a couple of you. All right. Did you write, did you raise your hand back there, Father Gritter? Ah, double, double. <laughs> so, um, anything, any concluding remarks? Yes, Mar- Marilyn. Uh, if anyone hasn't, the, the appendix of this book, written by the doctor with respect to the three elements of pain, is really a very, very interesting physical description. So, okay, so Marilyn is recommending that we read the appendix, which I did not do, I will confess. Very good, good. Well, I hope this has been, again, the whole, the whole purpose of this class has been for your own personal, well, stretching a little bit, growth, and kind of seeing that Christianity does all hang together. Uh, take it or leave it, people, and people do, but if you look at what the Bible says and you're going to take what Scripture teaches and base your f- faith off of that, 
I would say this is what it teaches you. And I would also argue that any other worldview, which you try to hold against that scripture, this is another whole thread, but that the Bible is internally consistent with itself. Any other worldview, any other worldview falls apart. And that, that is something which, I, it's not, that would be a great conversation for another day, but that's what I believe. That's why I feel so, that's why I'm standing here. So, yes, Sarah. In a simplistic way on earth, mm. of reading this and all, and we want to know why God does bad things to good people, unthought of, thinking of Jesus, and he's saying his cup could pass me by. Jesus himself was, was right. And that, and that, a bad thing that happened to him being put on the cross was ultimately the best good. For us. That's exactly right. That said it as well as Yeah, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus prays to not have to take the sins of humanity upon himself, which would be, anyway, profound. Yeah, well said. He says, let this cup pass, let this cup pass, we're going to do this on Monday, Thursday. Let this cup pass from me. A cup is a symbol of God's wrath, a symbol of wrath, a cup of God's wrath. And Jesus is saying, God, I really don't want to have to do this. <laughs> this is really going to stink. Um, but he does it. And as a result, out of his, his love for God, even though he is the, ch the son of God, he chooses to put his life in your place and mine. And that's the good news. Chris, you talk about communion uh, a little bit. I always look not, forward to not, not tonight. It's, it's a real segue. So, all right, friends. Well, thank you for spending your time you. with me. And, uh, and shall we close in prayer? Yes. All right. Lord God, we thank you for uh, this time. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your scripture, which guides us. We thank you, Lord, for the, the questions you allow us to ask. And we also thank you for the, uh, the answers that you give. Um, help us to take this, what we've learned, to really chew on it, to really digest it, and maybe most, most importantly, uh, to share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.